We'll read from Proverbs chapter 29. We'll read the chapter in its entirety. Hear the word of the Lord. He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, but when a wicked man rules, the people groan. Whoever loves wisdom makes his father rejoice, but a companion of harlots wastes his wealth. The king establishes the land by justice, but he who receives bribes overthrows it. A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. By transgression, an evil man is snared, but the righteous sings and rejoices. The righteous considers the cause of the poor, but the wicked does not understand such knowledge. Scoffers set a city aflame, but wise men turn away wrath. If a wise man contends with a foolish man, whether the fool rages or laughs, there is no peace. The bloodthirsty hate the blameless, and the upright seek his well-being. A fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. If a ruler pays attention to lies, all his servants become wicked. The poor man and the oppressor have this in common. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. The king who judges the poor with truth, his throne will be established forever. The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. When the wicked are multiplied, transgression increases, but the righteous will see their fall. Correct your son, and he will give you rest. Yes, he will give delight to your soul. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint, but happy is he who keeps the law. A servant will not be corrected by mere words, but for though he understands, he will not respond. Do you see a man hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. He who pampers his servant from childhood will have him as a son in the end. An angry man stirs up strife, and a furious man abounds in transgression. A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. Whoever is partner with a thief hates his own life. He swears to tell the truth, but reveals nothing. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Many seek the ruler's favor, but justice from man comes from the Lord, for man comes from the Lord. An unjust man is an abomination to the righteous, and he who is upright in the way is an abomination to the wicked. Well, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, I did a little bit of reading this week, and I discovered the life of a 14th century scholar, philosopher, and churchman by the name of Francesco Petrarca. He's better known uh, by the shortened version of his name, Petrarch. He's considered the father of the Renaissance, the Renaissance being that period of time in which uh, those who were learned and and well-read in culture began to look to the past and and look to uh, the philosophy and the wisdom of the ancient Greeks and Romans. They began to go back to the source, back to the font, to rediscover uh, the basis of Western civilization. And Petrarch sort of began that. He got the ball rolling on that uh, front. He was very interested in literature, uh, and he began to collect texts of ancient Greek and Latin uh, books and learning and began to read them. He is actually credited with coining the term Dark Ages, 
referring to the time in which he lived in the 14th century. Uh, he, he saw it as a dark age because so much wisdom had been lost. And so he sought to regain that lost wisdom. He is also considered, interestingly enough, the first tourist. He liked to travel around and see the sights. He, he liked to see um, beautiful vistas from mountaintops or to see some of the ancient wonders of the world. And he would record uh, his experience of viewing these things and publish it so that other people could read it. He was sort of the first uh, journalist of tourism. And so one day he has traveled from Italy to France and he climbs Mount Ventoux, which has, I'm told, a beautiful uh, view of the surrounding countryside. And so he climbs this mountain and he gets to the top and he's sitting on the top of this mountain looking out over this gorgeous view and he's tired from his climb and he has an ancient Latin text with him that he had recently uh, acquired and so he sits down and begins to read in it. It happens to be St. Augustine's Confessions and as he reads it, he is convicted and he comes to salvation. Now, he had previously been a priest in the Roman Catholic Church, but he had left the church in disillusionment uh, over uh, the corruption and various aspects of Roman Catholicism that uh, he had problems with. But now, as he discovers faith in Christ through the writings of Augustine, he, he goes back to the font of scripture. He, he's one of the first that begins to look for and to acquire Greek manuscripts of the New Testament and, and to read them. And, and he becomes very interested in discovering the truth of God in the scriptures. This, of course, puts him at odds with the Pope because he begins to see not only the, the financial corruptions within the Roman Catholicism, but he begins to see the corruptions of biblical truth and so he is sometimes called the proto-Protestant because he had so many public confrontations with Roman Catholicism and with the Pope in particular. But Petrarch didn't desire conflict. He didn't want to be at odds with the Pope. He wanted to live a peaceful and quiet life. He was very interested in reading and in contemplation and enjoying quiet and rest. And so as he as he thought about the life of the soul and the various conflicts that he was drawn into publicly with the church, he was very disturbed by the lack of peace that he was experiencing. And so as he reflected on that, he wrote and said that there are five great enemies to peace, greed, ambition, envy, anger, and pride. Now, two weeks ago, we considered the sin of pride and the corresponding virtue of humility. In the coming weeks, we will consider these other enemies to peace, which Petrarch noted. And I hadn't even read this when we, uh, Paul and I discussed the preaching schedule for the coming month. Uh, but as I see this now, and as I read this this week, I thought how interesting that this morning our subject is anger. And next week, we're going to be looking at, at greed and at envy in the coming weeks. I think that Petrarch was on to something here. The only one of his enemies to peace that I had not planned to specifically address was the idea of ambition, though I think that it will be addressed to some degree as we deal with 
the sins of greed and envy. But these are topics that we're taking from the book of Proverbs. And you saw as I read chapter 29 this morning that that Proverbs is uh, full of small vignettes of different wisdom addressing different subjects. And so we're going to draw out a few verses from chapter 29, but we're also going to be looking at verses from other chapters. All the Proverbs dealing with the issue of anger are not gathered together into one chapter. They're spread out through the book, such is the nature of the book of Proverbs. But I do think that Petrarch was on to something in his observations concerning the enemies to the peace that he so desired in his soul, because we see these same things warned against in the book of Proverbs. But before we deal with the sin of anger, I want us to focus on the subject of peace, which is what Petrarch sought throughout his life. And this is a big topic in the scriptures. If we think about the topic of peace, I'm sure that many of us may have heard at one time or another the term shalom, the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. This is one of several Hebrew words that are translated as peace throughout the scriptures, particularly in the book of Proverbs. Shalom is a big concept. It's more than just uh, the absence of conflict. Shalom indicates completeness or wholeness, health, healing from the wounds of battle. Right? So if you have conflict, you have war, uh, if you move past that to a place of shalom, a place of peace. You not only have the ceasing of strife, but you have a healing and a wholeness that is brought about in its wake. And we see this concept in chapter uh, chapter 3 of the Proverbs where it says, My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands for length of days and long life and peace or shalom they will add to you. So keeping the instructions of wisdom throughout the book of Proverbs that teaches us skillful living, it tends toward a full or a complete life. Not necessarily full of uh, material wealth, but a fullness of the soul, of the inner person. Peace in our souls, in our hearts, in our minds as we rest in God and in His wisdom. But there are two other words also found in the book of Proverbs that are translated as peace. One of those words shows up in Proverbs 17 where it says, Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he is considered perceptive. So in this case, to hold your peace means to hold your tongue, to not speak This may seem like somewhat of a a quaint expression for keeping your mouth shut, but it is related to the larger idea of peace because as we'll see this morning, our words often lead to anger, to strife and to conflict and contention. But when we use our words correctly, when we use them wisely or skillfully, which is what wisdom in the Proverbs means, then our words can actually lead to peace. But the wisdom of Proverbs here is teaching us that it is better to keep our mouths shut and pursue peace than it is to speak our mind at all times. And finally, we have the use of the word peace in our text this morning in verse 9. If a wise man contends with a foolish man, whether the fool rages or laughs, there is no peace. The same word is used again in verse 17, where it's translated as rest. Correct your son, and he will give you rest. 
Yes, he will give delight to your soul. Some translations will translate it as rest in verse 9 as well. And you can see uh, the idea and how it's related to this concept of peace. If your children are well-disciplined, you will enjoy them. You'll enjoy a restful or a peaceful home. You mothers have probably thought or even said out loud at some point, I wish that the kids would just quiet down and give me a moment of peace and quiet. That's the idea. Rest, peace, and quiet. And and we, we understand instinctively that this idea of rest or quietness is related to the concept of peace. There's a a phrase that that we might even use in regular conversation, maybe not so much in our current day, but in the past it has been used. And it it comes from a novel written in 1929 about World War I. And it's the phrase, all's quiet on the Western Front. And in the context of that novel and the story and the experience of a German soldier in World War I and that trench warfare, For all to be quiet on the Western Front meant not just that the sound of guns and of of shells had ceased, but that warfare had stopped and that they were going to be returning home and and looking to heal their land and to heal uh, their families. It's a restful, peaceful quiet as opposed to the chaos and noise and the damage of war. And we see this idea, this whole idea of peace and quiet and rest throughout the Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 17, verse 1, it says, Better is a dry morsel with quietness than a house full of feasting with strife. Better to have your stomach rumbling, gnawing on a dry piece of bread, and to have peace and quiet and rest than it is to have a feast laid out on the table before you and nothing but strife and contention at the table. Wisdom says in chapter 1 of Proverbs that fools who turn away from her instruction will be destroyed, but whoever listens to me will dwell safely and shall be quiet from the fear of evil. The wise person will have rest, quiet, and peace rather than fearing evil. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 23 says something similar. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. There is the idea of rest as a sort of peace that comes from fearing the Lord. Our souls need rest. They need quiet. They need peacefulness. This is why the Lord has so graciously given us the Sabbath a pattern of one day in seven set aside for the worship of God, for resting in Christ, for resting from the labors of our work of the week. Our bodies need that rest, but our souls need it as well. We need that quiet, peaceful rest. Peace of this sort is so important that many throughout church history have expressed sentiments very similar to those expressed by the great Puritan commentator Matthew Henry, who said, Peace is such a precious jewel that I would give anything for it but truth. Anything but the truth in order to have peace. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 20 tells us that counselors of peace have joy. 
So if we would have true joy in the Lord, rest for our weary souls, then we must pursue and diligently seek peace in our lives. Now, as Petrarch noted, anger is one of the great enemies to peace. And this is so because, as verse 22 of our text tells us, an angry man stirs up strife and a furious man abounds in transgression. Anger does not lead to peace. It leads to strife. It leads to contention and hostility and conflict, the exact opposite of peace, rest, and quietness. Now, we may, in that moment, think otherwise. When the kids are chaotic and the house is riotous mess and we get angry and we yell at the children and they get quiet and we think, ah, my anger accomplished what I wanted. It gave me peace, but it really didn't. Our anger, when we yell at our kids or at others, it may get them to quiet down for a time and for the short term, but our getting our way in that instance doesn't create peace. It doesn't encourage rest and peace in their souls or in our own. There's still a tension there from our anger and the expression of it. It causes stress and anxiety and hostility and resentment and a whole host of responses that are anything but peaceful and restful. Listen to what verse 8 tells us. Scoffers set a city aflame, but wise men turn away wrath. As you may recall from our message on pride two weeks ago, a scoffer is one who uses hostile speech, mockery, scorn, scoffing at others. This sort of speech is often done in anger and in pride, and it stirs up the anger of others against whom it is directed, and that causes contention. Verse 8 says that it sets a city aflame. And the word, the Hebrew word behind set aflame literally means to blow into flames. The picture is that these sorts of words are like blowing on the coals in order to get the fire blazing. A similar picture is given to us in chapter 26 where it says, As charcoal is to burning coals and wood to fire. What is charcoal to burning coals or wood to a fire? It's the fuel. We need the wood in order for the fire to burn. So as charcoal is to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. That contentious spirit and the words that flow from it are like adding fuel to the fire, like blowing on the coals in order to get a blaze going. It only stirs up the anger of others, and our own anger as well. And it causes conflict between us and the person against whom we have directed our anger. You ever wonder why some people seem to end up in conflict no matter where they go? Well, it may be that they're blowing on the coals, stirring it up, adding fuel, causing conflict with those around them. This is what our anger does when we give vent to it. Verse 22 says, An angry man stirs up strife, and a furious man abounds in transgression. Not only does our anger stir up strife and anger in others and cause conflict with them, but it also causes us to abound in transgressions. 
sin, I've said before, is like grapes. It comes in bunches. Anger or fury, as verse 22 puts it, is a sin in itself. But it's often the symptom of other sins and the cause of even other more sins. Our anger is often the symptom of our sin of pride or jealousy or envy. And it leads us to other sins. Anger unchecked will eventually turn into hatred. And Proverbs tells us that hatred stirs up strife. But love covers all sins. Like its parent, anger, hatred stirs up strife and contention with others. And it is presented for us as the opposite of love. And since we are commanded to love both God and to love our neighbor, and the entire law is summarized in loving God and in loving our neighbor as ourself, hatred does not lead to love. It leads merely to more anger and to other sins. If you come to hate another person, you won't seek their good. You won't pray for their good. You'll end up being covetous of any good that they experience, you'll end up sinning against them in other ways because of your anger. So when we give vent to our anger, it gives birth to hatred and it also gives birth to hatreds, brothers and sisters and all the other sins that accompany it. As we fail to love our neighbor as ourself, we sin against them in many ways. A furious man abounds in transgressions. But look now at verses 8 and 9, and I want us to, to notice a couple of things in these two verses. Scoffers set a city aflame, but wise men turn away wrath. If a wise man contends with a foolish man, whether the fool rages or laughs, there is no peace. Now, first, I want us to notice the association of some phrases in these two verses the descriptions of the angry man and the wise man who are contrasted. Notice that the angry man is described as a scoffer, foolish man, the fool, an angry man, a furious man. The one who speaks with harsh and hostile language, the angry person, the furious person, they're all the same. They're the, they're the same. They're, they're not necessarily identical, but they are essentially the fool that Proverbs has warned us again against from the beginning, from chapter 1. And notice the contrast that is set up. It is wise men in verse 8 or a wise man in verse 9. See, the wise person, according to Proverbs, is the man who lives in the fear of the Lord and learns to live skillfully because of his fear of God. The fool is one, however, who does not learn the fear of the Lord. He rejects the wisdom of God, the wisdom of fearing God, and he does not learn to live skillfully, and therefore he gives vent to his anger and his fury, and he stirs up strife with others. In verse 11, it, it says, a fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. The angry person is acting foolishly, sinfully, not fearing the Lord, but giving vent to their feelings, to their emotions, to their passions. Look again at verse 8 and 9 and notice the action verbs associated with this angry, foolish person. Scoffers set a city aflame, but wise men turn away wrath. 
If a wise man contends with a foolish man, whether the fool rages or laughs, there is no peace. The angry man or the fool sets aflame. He rages, he laughs, he stirs up strife, he abounds in transgression. Even the laughing here is not good. This is the sort of laughter that is mocking, ridiculing, and scoffing others. Notice the direction of all these actions that that come about because of our anger. Our anger works things up. It stirs up strife. It fans the flames. It sets things ablaze. It abounds or piles up transgressions. The wise person, by contrast, you'll notice, does exactly the opposite. The wise person turns away wrath and anger. This means to to turn it back, to redirect it, to turn it around. As the anger rises and gets stirred up, the wise man seeks to calm it down. Wrath in verse 8 literally means flaring nostrils. So so think about the, the picture of someone who is getting worked up and angry and you begin to see their nostrils widening and flaring as they're as they're getting furious and worked up. The wise person calms the situation down, diffuses the anger, brings the temperature in the room down, we might say. In verse 9, the wise person is cautioned not to engage in contention and dispute with the fool. It won't lead to peace. And peace here is rest or literally descent into quietness. It's stillness, settling down instead of working up. The wise person calms things down instead of stirring up strife and contention. The wise person is seeking to bring rest and peace and quiet, not only to his own soul, but to the lives of those that he is engaging with. The fool gives vent to his emotions, allowing them to flare up in verse 11. But a wise person holds back. They, they restrain them. They rein them in, like slowing down an out-of-control horse. A wise person seeks to de-escalate anger and bring rest and peace to all. The question is, how? How do we do that? How, how do we get control of our own anger so that we can enjoy peace? And how can we calm down the anger of another person when it is directed at us so that we don't experience strife and contention? Well, Proverbs instructs us not only on the effects and the dangers of anger, but also how we are to deal with it. So let's first see how it instructs us to deal with our own anger. The most obvious way that Proverbs instructs us concerning our own anger is by warning us of the dangers of it, of the the results of anger, contention and strife and hostility, a lack of rest and a lack of peace. But it also gives us some very practical help in dealing with our anger. In chapter 14, we read this, he who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. Throughout the Proverbs, this word understanding serves as a close synonym for wisdom. In Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, it says this, My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, 
Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. You can see there's a close association between wisdom and understanding. And and this continues throughout the book of Proverbs as we learn to fear the Lord and to live in such a way that pleases Him, to live skillfully. So one way to deal with our own anger then is to learn wisdom and understanding, to learn to fear the Lord, to humble ourselves before Him, to consider His holy wrath against sin in comparison with our anger, our anger begins to look very petty. It begins to look ugly. Indeed, we begin to notice the sinfulness of our anger. When we get angry, it's a result of our pride being offended. Now, our anger is a sinful way of responding to someone else exposing our sin. But when we recognize that our anger is indeed sinful, And when we put it in the context of God's holy anger against sin, that sobers us. Anger is a passion, an emotion that can carry us away. We need to restrain it. We need to rein it in to see it for what it really is, the sinful response of a sinner having our sin exposed. But when we saw and considered the fear of the Lord, we saw that it's not easy. It's not easy to view the Lord rightly, to understand and grasp His holiness, His almighty character, His perfection, and by contrast, to view ourselves rightly as decrepit, sinners, ugly, wretched, humble ourselves before Him, Thomas Kempis once said, all men desire peace, but very few desire those things that make for peace. It's not natural for us in our sin nature to desire the things that make for peace, to desire humility, to desire the fear of the Lord. This is a work of grace by the Spirit of God in our hearts. So the first thing that we can do to learn to control our anger is to pray to ask God to work in us by his spirit that we might learn to fear him, to humble ourselves before him and to recognize our, our anger for what it is, sin against God. Another term that becomes closely associated with wisdom throughout Proverbs is this idea of discretion. Proverbs 19 verse 11 says, "'The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger.'" And his glory is to overlook a transgression. Now, discretion is the skill of knowing when and how to act in a given situation. So if we say that someone was discreet, we mean that they didn't call undue attention to themselves and to their actions. In our context, as it relates to anger, discretion is the skill of knowing when and how to respond to someone who has offended us in such a way that it won't escalate or stir up the strife. This likely involves a degree of patience and thoughtfulness before we react, before we speak or take action. 
Acting with this sort of discretion, especially when we have been offended, is difficult, but it will greatly aid us in controlling our tempers. This is a skill that is well worth learning. And one practical way to do this is to remind yourself to take a moment and to pray about your response. Even pray for the person who has offended you before you respond to the offense. This will not only delay your response, giving you time to get past the initial rush of the emotion of anger. It'll give you time to think, but it has the added benefit when you pray about your response of reminding you that the Lord sees, the Lord hears what you do and what you say in response to this other person. This teaches us to fear the Lord And it allows discretion to do its work of slowing down our anger so that we can de-escalate rather than stir up. A third way that Proverbs instructs us to deal with our anger is to stop it before it gets too far. Proverbs chapter 17 verse 14 says, The beginning of strife is like the releasing of water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. The picture here is a leak in a dam where the water is starting to come through. If you don't stop it right away, that water will eventually wash out the entire dam. Anger is the same way. When the strife begins, it will escalate from there if we don't stop it. In the words of Barney Fife, nip it, nip it in the bud. Stop your anger before it gets to full flower, before it becomes fury. Stop it as soon as you realize that you're starting to to feel that anger rising up within you. That's the time to act, to stop the anger. The New American Standard says in this verse to abandon the quarrel. The King James says to leave off the quarreling. The word literally means to forsake the matter. Turn your back on it. Walk away. Even if the other person is wrong, you are better off to turn and walk away than you are to lose your temper and respond in anger. So act fast. Turn your back on the anger. Walk away from the fight before it has a chance to grow into something that you can't stop. Anger is like a raging torrent pouring through a breach in the dam. If you didn't stop it soon enough, it gets to that point where you can't stop it in that moment. It's better to stop it before it gets that far. So in dealing with our own anger, it involves us recognizing that our anger is sinful, slowing down and stopping to think before we respond to an offense, turning away, forsaking, or maybe we should use the biblical word and say, repent of your anger. Turn your back on it. The wise person seeks to de-escalate anger and to bring rest and peace to their own heart and mind. But Proverbs teaches us skill for godly living, and that means that we have to interact with others. And so it's not only our anger, but at times we're going to be forced to respond to the anger of other people. It's unavoidable. If you live in this sinful, fallen world, sooner or later you will be faced with the anger of another person a parent, a child, a spouse, a co-worker, a random person on the, on the interstate. You will be faced with an angry person. 
None of us like it when someone else is angry with us. So how are we to respond to anger in another? Proverbs instructs us in how to do this wisely or skillfully. The responses to another person's anger will vary depending on the situation, on our own part in the situation, and on the severity of their anger. So Proverbs offers us a range of responses. The first and most obvious way to deal with an angry person is to deal with your own anger in the ways that we have already discussed. A wrathful man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger allays contention. So go back to the previous steps and recognize your own anger as a sinful response. Repent of it. Turn from it. The earlier, the better. And when you feel yourself becoming angry or getting offended by an angry person, stop and think. Act with discretion. Being slow to anger will often allay the other person's anger. And to allay it here means to diminish it, to calm it down, to bring it rest and peace. But remember, these proverbs are proverbs. They're not guarantees. More often than not, if you remain calm, if you don't give vent to your anger, you will be able to diffuse the situation and calm the other person down. But not always. It is not a guarantee. I've actually been in situations where someone was angry with me and I managed in that moment to control my anger and that only made them angrier because I didn't engage them and they were looking for a fight and I didn't give them one and so they got even madder at me. The Proverbs will address that as well. But most of the time, being slow to anger ourselves will help calm the anger of another person. Another way that Proverbs counsels us is to watch our words and our tone of voice. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. This is related to the previous point. If you use the discretion necessary to slow down and consider before you respond to an angry person, this will allow you to answer the other person in a calm manner carefully considering your words and with a gentle tone that will help bring peace to the situation. On the other hand, if you respond harshly, if you respond uh, hastily, that's only going to stir up the other person's anger. It's like adding fuel to the fire, blowing on the coals to stir up the flame. The situation will only escalate if you respond to an angry person with anger of your own. Control your anger. Be careful of your words. Watch your tone. Remember, your goal is rest, peace, and quiet, not strife and argument. Our text in in chapter 29 says that there are certain people who are so foolish that you simply shouldn't engage them at all. In verse 9, if a wise man contends with a foolish man, whether the fool rages or laughs, there is no peace. In this case, even if you act with skill, with wisdom, controlling your own anger, controlling your words, thinking before you speak, even if you do all of that, certain people are so foolish. And remember, the fool is the one who has no fear of the Lord. They give vent to their anger. It won't matter. It won't matter how you respond to them. They'll either go into a rage, getting angrier because you've stayed calm, or they'll respond to your calm demeanor with laughter, with mocking and scorn. Either way, there's no peace, no quiet, no rest. So you're better off just walking away and not 
contending with them. And the word contend here in verse 9 means something like to go to judgment with them. It means to, to argue a case before a judge, to debate. So don't do that with a foolish, angry person who won't calm down. Even if you answer gently, they're just going to get more worked up. So there's a point at which we need to have the wisdom and the discretion to know when to walk away. Another bit of advice that Proverbs provides concerns one of the fuel sources that often causes anger and strife. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 20, where there is no wood, the fire goes out, no fuel, no flame. Where there is no talebearer, strife ceases. The one who seeks peace must take this warning and apply it in both directions. First, don't be a gossip. Don't be a talebearer. Don't add fuel to the fire. It only stirs up anger. And secondly, take away the fuel. Refuse to participate if someone else wants to gossip. If another person starts gossiping, either walk away and take no part in it or gently speak to them and encourage them not to gossip because gossip will only stir up strife and contention and anger. If we take away the fuel source, the fire goes out. The absence of gossip will mean the, absent, will mean the absence of anger, the absence of strife. And finally, Proverbs makes it clear that at times drastic measures may be necessary to put an end to anger and strife. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 10, cast out the scoffer and contention will leave. Yes, strife and reproach will cease. To cast them out seems to imply that we're talking about some sort of group setting, perhaps the king's court or the church. If a person is a scoffer, one who uses angry, hostile speech and causes strife and contention and they won't be calmed by other means, it may be necessary at some point to cast them out. In the church, there's a process involved in this. You approach them individually. You plead with them to repent and turn away from their anger. And if they refuse, you, you get other people involved, perhaps the elders. If they refuse to repent, the entire church body must stand together and call them to repentance. And if they refuse to hear the church, then they are to be cast out. That's pretty drastic. But sometimes it might be necessary. We are called to live in peace together as God's people. If someone is constantly stirring up strife, stirring up contention in the body, it's better for them to be cast out and the body to be at peace than it is to try and live with this tension and this anger that will eventually tear the body apart. So to deal with another person's anger, we must first deal with our own, and then we must use discretion that we have learned to answer gently, know when to walk away and not debate an angry person, Avoid gossip, and if necessary, cast the angry person who refuses to repent out of our fellowship. As Matthew Henry said, peace is a precious jewel. We should go to great lengths to obtain it and to protect it. Romans directs us in much the same ways that Proverbs has. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil 
with good. Don't respond harshly. Leave vengeance to God. Pursue peace with all people as far as it depends on you. A wise person seeks to de-escalate anger both in themselves and others and to bring peace and rest to the situation. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. I think this is because Christ himself, the only begotten Son of God, is the Prince of Peace. Those who pursue peace, who become peacemakers, are being conformed to his image, to the image of the Son, and therefore they are called sons of God. Christ himself, we see in his own example, did not repay evil for evil. He brought about peace between sinners and God by suffering on our behalf. Romans 5 says, For if when we were enemies, we were enemies, we were at war with God, hostile, angry towards God, but we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's through the death of Christ that we're reconciled to God. We had made ourselves his enemies, and God is wrathful towards sin. God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day, Psalm 7, verse 11 tells us. But his anger, unlike ours, his anger is just, it's righteous. Ours is a sinful anger. His anger isn't the response of offended pride. His anger is directed against sin, which has violated his perfect holiness. So his justice demands wrath towards sin. But God is not just wrathful. God is merciful and God is loving. And so he sent his son to bear that wrath in our place so that he might make peace between us and our creator. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. What a blessed state that is. Peace with each other is to be desired, but peace with God? We should desire this precious jewel at all costs. God's wrath satisfied in the death of Christ, his mercy and his love flowing freely to those that he has redeemed. And we find rest and wholeness in a restored relationship with our heavenly father because Christ suffered in our place so that he might make peace between us and God. This puts our anger in perspective, doesn't it? What right do we have to be angry with someone else for some offense against us. We're not holy the way God is holy. It's God's holiness that they have transgressed. Their anger is a sin against God, far greater than it is a sin against us. What right do we have to be angry in response? When someone offends you and your anger begins to rise, let it remind you not only of their offense against God, but of your own offense against a holy, a just, and an almighty God. And let that turn you from an angry response to that person to one of thanksgiving to God for the gift of peace that he has worked through Christ. 
I'll close with these words from Horatius Bonner, who said, I hear the words of love. I gaze upon the blood. I see the mighty sacrifice. And I have peace with God. Amen. Let's pray.